And so as we begin looking at God's word this morning, the reality is when we look around in our world, we see that we live in a broken world. We do. I mean, we see poverty, we see war, divorce, corruption, disease. These are all realities that every one of us has to live with. And as a people of God, we are not immune to suffering. The, the brokenness of this world extends into our homes. The brokenness extends into our own lives. And every one of us lives with disappointments, with longings, with pain, with struggles, with failure, with uncertainty. This is the reality of living in a world that is not yet renewed. Christ has not yet returned and made all things new, and so it is still marked by sin and by death. And we have to honest with ourselves is that every one of us, we are all broken people. But we praise our God together that he is a God of mercy, he is a God of grace, who reaches down into our own lives in here and in the now with where we live in Abu Dhabi with the blazing temperatures and with the uncertainty and the blessing and yet the frustration that it can be, he reaches down into our lives here and now and he offers us his sustaining grace, his healing power, his presence through his spirit. He is with us. And in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our suffering, we truly can, through the power of His Spirit, we can live victorious lives. We can live lives of true and lasting joy. We really can. We don't have to live lives that are defeated. We don't have to live lives that are focused on everything that's not right in our lives. Even in the middle of our struggles, we still have an eternal purpose. We still exist to know and to enjoy God. We still exist, nonetheless, to know Him and to make Him known. We still exist to savor His goodness. We still have an eternal purpose in who we are in Christ, to reflect His eternal perfections and glory. And so today's sermon is titled, Victorious suffering, even if today you really are suffering. We don't have to live defeated. And God has a better way for us to live. As we contemplate on this victorious suffering from God's word, we're continuing in our series in First Peter, a series called Expatriate, following Jesus in a foreign land, because every one of us is a spiritual Expatriate, if you know Jesus and are following him, then this world is not our home. Let's read in 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Pick up where we left off last week. 1 Peter 13, we'll read through verse 22 and finish chapter 3 today. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. God's word is powerful. And even just reading it in itself encourages us and challenges us and feeds our souls. Allow me to give you the primary truth. What is this text revealing? What is God speaking to his people today at ECC off-island through this truth? The main idea here is that we are called to respond to suffering with the resolve to glorify God. This text is just crying out, that we are called to respond to suffering with a resolve to glorify God. And so we live in a world that is corrupted by sin and death as we have acknowledged. But the question is not, will we suffer? That is not the question. The question for this morning for us to contemplate, here's the key question for today, is how will you respond to suffering? How will you and I respond to suffering. And this powerful text shows us how exactly our God in heaven expects us, how we are called to respond to suffering in a way that glorifies him. And there's three specific ways in this text that we're called to respond. So number one, as we begin, God is glorified when we respond to suffering by speaking the gospel. Number one, we glorify God in the middle of suffering when we speak the gospel. So in the middle of pain, middle of disappointment, God is calling you and me to be tenacious, to be persistent, to have a resolve to continue to speak the good news of Christ's life, death, burial, powerful resurrection, how he is the king, how he alone satisfies, how he is living water, he is bread of life, he alone can change lives, he alone is glorious, he is God, and he offers forgiveness to anyone that will repent and trust in him. We are to speak this remarkably glorious good news to people in the middle of our suffering, to those who are far from him. Now, I already know what you're thinking, I mean, some of you. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, preacher boy. I thought this was supposed to be a sermon on how to cope with suffering. Now it's turned into an evangelism sermon. I'm already confused. Well, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. So it's in the text. This text is talking about sharing the gospel 
in the middle of suffering. Verse 13, let's see how all this unfolds. Let's see it from God's word. Verse 13 says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, to understand that, just back up one verse, verse 12, to get the context. This is from last week. Verse 12, actually 8 through 12, is quoting Psalm 34. And the Apostle Peter is reminding you and me that God cares for us, for his people, and that no harm will come to his people. I was talking about in the ultimate sense. Remember the context. We're expatriates. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us. And so one day, when we are in heaven, there will be no more harm, no more pain, no more corruption, no more sin, no more disease, no more death. It'll be gone. And so in the ultimate sense, no evil will ultimately befall the people of God. But we're not home yet. And so there continues to be the reality of suffering. And so he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Remember, the original audience in first century modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire these believers were suffering persecution. They were suffering because they loved Jesus. And so God's word here through the servant Peter, inspired by God's spirit, is acknowledging that disciples of Jesus will suffer in this world. And our very own master told us that we ought not be surprised. In Matthew chapter 5, our king, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. You're thinking, Jesus, what? You're being reviled and persecuted and evil? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And so Jesus is promising a future blessing in heaven. Your reward will be great in heaven. But he also gives the assurance of current blessing here and now on this earth, on this side of heaven, right now. He assures us his blessing because he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. And also in the future, ultimately. But don't miss it. Blessed are you when. You're being persecuted and evil comes to you on my account. He's telling us that he is promising his sustaining grace and his blessing, his presence in the middle of what we're going through. And Peter is picking up on that exact same thing right here. God's blessing in the middle of suffering. Verse 14 in our text for this morning he says, when, when you're suffering, you will be blessed. And so Peter's picking on that same theme, that you will be. There's this promise that God is going to be with you, to bless you in the middle of the suffering. But how do we respond? That's our question that we're pondering this morning. Verse 15 says, 
but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So there's part of the response, is as we're unfolding and seeing how this points to the gospel, he says, okay, you're suffering, you have God's promise of blessing in the middle of it, but here's what you need to do. You need to respond. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So when I was reading this and meditating this week, I thought, well, why holy? I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just the pastor. I don't know. But when I'm having a hard time, I don't want to focus on God being holy. I want to focus on God being powerful. I want God to powerfully show up and fix the problem. I want God to be powerful and make that person move away that I don't like. Or is it just me? He said it out loud. I want God to be powerful and change my job situation. God, be powerful and change your husband or your wife or your kids or the disease, mental anguish, your boss. And we think, God, just show up and be powerful and just change the circumstances. And in our self-absorbed, self-focused condition, we don't want to focus on God being holy. We want God to just take away the suffering. And yet, the Bible doesn't say to honor God as powerful. In the middle of suffering, it says, honor God, honor Christ the Lord as holy. We must set our minds and set our affections on God's holiness, on God's character, because God fundamentally is holy. God is completely set apart from creation. He stands alone. He is unique, one of a kind, with no rival, with no peer, completely good and pure and all-wise. And to say that God is holy, to say that God is God. And so here, to say, regard Jesus Christ, the Lord, as holy. To say Jesus is holy is to say Jesus is God. Because he is. He's our God. Jesus has the highest value. He is the greatest treasure. He is worthy of your admiration. He is worthy of your awe. He's worthy of your deepest affections. He is worthy of your everything. And so honoring Christ the Lord as holy is humbly and joyfully bowing down at the feet of Jesus in wonder and awe of his beauty, his majesty, his glorious and eternal perfections. And in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our disappointment or our pain, we must stop looking at ourselves and look up and honor Christ, our King, as holy. And we focus on the splendor of Jesus. Even when life is hard, it leads to something. Second half of verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. Here's the point. This is why God allows you and me to go through hard times. This is why. There's a purpose in this. This is why God is blessing and sustaining us in our suffering. This is why we must keep our focus on the holiness and the glory of Jesus. Remember the main idea of this text. We are called to respond to suffering with the resolve to glorify God. And God is glorified here when you respond to suffering, number one, by speaking the gospel. All of this first point, everything that's being revealed on, yes, you're suffering, God is blessing you. Keep your focus on Christ as holy. It all points to this, speaking the gospel, telling others that you have a living hope, having joy in the pain, because you know that you have a God who is sovereign, who is good, and who has good purposes for you. And when people that are lost and they see you and they see your pain and they see your problems and they they see joy, they're not going to understand that. They're going to ask you, why? How do you have joy? How do you have hope in the middle of what you're going through? And you say, let me tell you about Jesus. There is a purpose in your pain. If there was no purpose in your pain, then God would stop being sovereign. But God is sovereign. And so we know that he's working it for good. Here's what happens to us typically when we go through hard times, though. We tend to focus on ourselves, oftentimes. We tend to really focus on what's wrong with us, and we can maybe respond to hard times with depression, or anger, or fear, or addictive behaviors, or maybe we try to manipulate people, or manipulate circumstances, to try to fix it and change it within our own power, with our own wisdom, and our goal is to make ourselves more comfortable, to stop the pain, when God has a purpose in that pain, but we don't want that, we want the morphine, And so instead of trusting Jesus in the middle of the pain and letting his spirit sustain us and being on mission, we want to reach for the emotional, spiritual morphine. Put down the morphine and reach up and regard Christ as holy. Remember that there is a God of grace and he loves you and he promises to Sustain. We remember that God loves us. When we remember that He will not abandon us, when we remember that we are here for a mission, and He's using the pain so that we can speak the gospel. You know what happens to us in the middle of the pain? We're filled with hope. Our souls—it's like wind in your sail that pushes you down. It fills us with hope. We remember in the middle of the circumstances that are difficult that we've been entrusted with the mission to glorify God by making and developing disciples. You know what happens to believers when they stop focusing on themselves and what's not right in their lives, that are focused and regarding Christ as holy, and they're not feeling sorry for themselves because their life isn't perfect? 
it leads to missional explosion. That's what it leads to. Living in Abu Dhabi is a privilege. It is challenging at times, no doubt. I acknowledge that. But living here is more than a challenge. It's a privilege. God has assembled all nations right here. And he's brought us together as a church so that we can share the good news. Will you be intentional to regard Christ as holy? Allow him to change you so that you will see the purpose in what is not right in your life and you can then use that hope that you're going to get and share this beautiful, wondrous good news with the people around you that so desperately need Jesus. We'll be intentional to speak the gospel. In all of our brokenness, he wants to display his glory so that we can be fruitful for his kingdom. So God is glorified when we respond to suffering, number one, by speaking the gospel. Number two, by living in light of the gospel. The text is clear here that we must be ready to share the reason for the hope that is in us. So we must be ready to speak the good news, the hope we have in Christ. So we must tell others the good news that we have. But our words will fall on deaf ears if our lives don't match up with the message. And so when our words and our lives are not consistent, no one believes us. They're like, your Jesus isn't very good. Maybe you should go back to God's customer service desk and return it for something better because you say you have Jesus and that he, he sustains you and he's living water, but you look pretty thirsty to me for other things of this world. And so maybe, maybe, this, maybe this is not very good. Maybe you should get, you know, trade it in for a better model. And the reality is that the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is us not regarding him as holy, with us not focusing on him, not relying on him. And so when our lives and our message are consistent and we really are relying on Jesus, then people believe that it's true because Jesus is real. This is not just some religious thing that we do so that we feel good about ourselves on a Friday morning. This is not a, a cultural religious thing. This is us coming together so that we have fuel for the mission, so that we gather and we can then be scattered to proclaim the gospel, so that we're encouraged together. And so we are called to speak the gospel, but also to live in light of the gospel. You see it in verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. So as followers of Jesus, people are watching us. They're watching how we live. And so our good behavior needs to demonstrate and validate the message. So that when people accuse us of evil, he says falsely, those accusations will be proven to be groundless. And he says, it may be God's will that you suffer. And if you're going to suffer, be for doing good. Don't suffer for your foolishness. And so if you lose your job, you say, oh, I'm being persecuted. 
No, you were just a bad employee. So if you're going to be persecuted, he says, may it be for doing good, for displaying the glory of God and for being on mission. And if you're persecuted for that, then Jesus says, be glad, have joy, because your reward is great in heaven and I will be with you. What does it look like for this living in light of the gospel so people can see us know that this is real? It's living in a holy direction, living a life that is not perfect because none of us are perfect. So we're not talking about holy perfection. That's on the other side of heaven. That's after we die and are resurrected, we'll have holy perfection. But we can have a holy direction in our lives. Humility, love for God, love for others, consistency with what we say and how we live. And what will help us to live like that is knowing that we are secure in who we are in God. Knowing that God loves us and knowing that he has a good plan for us. So if today, if you are going through something really hard, maybe you are, something really challenging, you have to know and believe that God loves you and that God has a good plan for your life. Even in your suffering, he does. And even when something undesirable happens to us, those truths don't change. God still loves you, and he still has a good plan for you, even when things get hard. And so regardless of what happens, we have to know and believe these things. So when that job doesn't materialize, when you get that denial letter, when you're hoping for an approval letter, when that house just still won't sell, when that marriage proposal just isn't coming, or maybe that lady to propose to isn't appearing, or maybe when the sickness is prolonged, when you find yourself maybe swallowed up by, by bitterness or by depression, when these things happen in our lives, we don't have the right to make others around us miserable. Hear me. Just because you're going through a hard time does not give you the right to make your wife or husband and kids or coworkers or home group members miserable. You are not entitled to bitterness just because life is not turning out the way you planned. God is working your circumstances for good. We have to believe that. But we don't get to choose what that good is. We think, oh, God's working for good, and we want to define that. But the ultimate good is defined by God as we be conformed to the image of Christ. And so the goal in our suffering is that we would be more holy. As we saw earlier in 1 Peter, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. That is what God is accomplishing in our lives through the difficult moments. And so God's glory is more important than our comfort or our success. And in those hard times, we're reminded that we really do need Jesus. And so we can sing it, I need you, how I need you. And then we walk out those doors and forget that we need him. And we live like we don't need him. But when it gets really hard, we remember, oh, yeah, I do need you. 
And that's a good thing. It's an act of God's mercy, oftentimes, that we have difficulties. Because it's part of his purpose. His glory is more valuable and more important. Will we allow God to come in and change us to the image of Christ, even if he doesn't change the circumstances? God is glorified. When we respond to suffering, number one, by speaking the gospel. Number two, by living in light of the gospel. A life that is consistent with who God is and who he's called us to be. Number three, God is glorified when we respond to the gospel, or respond to suffering by entrusting yourself to victorious King Jesus. So God is glorified when we're suffering and we entrust ourselves to victorious King Jesus. Verse 18 is magnificent. It's this beautiful summary of substitutionary atonement. You're like, oh, that's a really big theology word. Yes, it is. But all that's referring to is Jesus dying on the cross in our place, reconciling us to God. And so substitutionary atonement just refers to what Christ did on the cross to bring us to the Father. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So this next phrase shows us his victorious resurrection, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And so on the cross, Jesus died physically in the flesh, but he was resurrected, it says, in the spirit, resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that is alive in you and me, is the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus here is being de- depicted in these last few verses as the victorious king. He has conquered sin, death, the powers of Satan and his, and his minions, and he is victorious. He took our guilt, our shame upon him, and he resurrected with power. Now the next few verses base this truth on what happened in the days of Noah. Let's read verses 19 and 20. In which he, this is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was studying this text early this week, I was reminded at the very end of 2 Peter, so his second letter, he he talks about his brother Paul, the apostle. And he says, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And so you have Peter saying that Paul's words are hard to understand. And I read this and I think, really, Peter? Like, Paul's hard to understand? Have you not just read what you just wrote? This is the pot, you know, calling the kettle black. Because these words are hard to understand. It, this is a complex, very difficult text that there's a lot of different people that have different interpretations on what these verses mean. I won't go into all of the different views that are held out there. I will limit this to the two primary views that are held by godly evangelical men and women, so people that we would agree with, that their lives were to study the scriptures, and there's two primary views 
on what this means. Full disclosure, I don't know exactly what Peter's talking about here. I know the main point that he's conveying, that is clear, but exactly what he means in these verses, I'm not sure. But here's one accepted evangelical consistent view. One, is that Jesus is just proclaiming to spirits in prison in the days of Noah. It's describing demons or or fallen angels going back to Genesis chapter 6, where those who hold this view believe that these angels took human-ish form and cohabited with human women. And so these fallen angels are currently in prison. And Jesus went after his death to proclaim to them, but he was proclaiming victory and saying, look, I won, you lost, you're in prison, you opposed me, and now you're defeated. And so Christ was proclaiming victory over these particular fallen angels, again, going back to Genesis chapter 6. And then, of course, he was resurrected, and so that's what this is talking about. Another view, which I actually lean towards, is that the word spirit here can mean human spirit or human soul. So the word spirit could mean evil spirit. It could mean human spirit or Holy Spirit. And so the context tells you if the word holy is added, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. If the word evil, then you oh, that's the evil, that's the fallen angel. If it just says spirit, it's not defined. So this could be referring to human soul or human spirit. And so therefore, with this reading, so the spirits in prison are people, humans, that are in prison, that are in hell, put it that way, currently. People that back when Noah was alive, they were evil and and persecuting Noah, much like people were persecuting the people that Peter is writing to. And so these evil people are currently in prison, and Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, was proclaiming to them through Noah. Because it does say in 1 Peter 1.11, it's in the very same book, 1 Peter 1.11 says that the spirit of Christ was speaking through Old Testament prophets. And so it seems consistent that it was Jesus speaking through the Old Testament prophet Noah to these people to repent, to turn away from their sin. But they refused, and so they were destroyed in the flood and are currently in prison. They're currently in hell. Now, again, I lean towards the second one, but I don't know. I'm not saying the first one is wrong. Both are accepted within evangelical, gospel-centered, orthodox circles. But it really almost doesn't matter because even though I'm not sure which one of these is most correct, the primary truth that is being revealed is perfectly clear. There's no no denying that. What's being revealed through these kind of mysterious words is that Jesus is the victorious king. That is clear. The kingdom of darkness has failed. All those who oppose the king are imprisoned. There is no victory for those who oppose Jesus and his kingdom. That is abundantly clear in this text. And the next verse, 21, helps us better understand this. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the floodwaters with Noah, again, here's the context, the floodwaters were a sign of judgment. And so the evil people that were opposing God, persecuting Noah, they experienced the judgment of God for opposing God, his people, and God's purposes. And yet, the people of God, in this case, eight people, this remnant, so God's people safely passed through the waters of God's judgment. Again, the waters represent God's holy and deserved judgment. And God's people were safely brought through judgment and preserved. And so the way that Noah was saved with the ark, with the waters of judgment all around, it says corresponds to baptism. Now the word corresponds refers to it's a model or a a pattern. And so he's saying that what happened with Noah many years ago, was a pattern that was pointing to what happens today with followers of Jesus. And so what was happening with Noah was a foreshadowing, a picture pointing to, he's talking about his baptism. And so baptism is a picture of death. Because, I mean, all of us know, if you go underwater for too long, you will probably die. So being submerged underwater is going to lead to death. And so baptism is a picture of believers having been delivered from death, delivered from God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because baptism is also a picture of resurrection. And so yes, in the watery grave and then yet resurrected. So just like Noah was rescued from the waters of judgment, we have been rescued from judgment because of Christ's resurrection. And so baptism is a very powerful picture that shows death and judgment, and yet it shows being saved from that and resurrected and safely brought through God's judgment. And so Noah's ark was pointing to something greater, the ultimate reality, Jesus saving his people from God's judgment through the cross. And so the cross of Christ is the final better ark. It is the means that God is using to rescue his people and bring them safely through judgment while judging and defeating the enemy that is opposed to God. So we have victory. And this theology impacts how we think and how we live. The more that we contemplate on being rescued from death and judgment, the more that it will overflow with grace for other people. The more forgiving we will be. The more that we're going to entrust ourselves to God in the middle of really dark times. And we see here that it says, baptism now saves you. And so it's describing being baptized with Christ. How we are united with Christ and saved from God's judgments because of his resurrection. 
And so Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what has allowed us to experience salvation, not being judged, but being accepted and loved by God and adopted into his family. And, and water baptism is the picture. And so the actual act of water baptism doesn't save you. It's just water. It can't save you. But what it pictures does. And you see it in the text. He says that baptism is an external picture of internal faith. The actual water doesn't save. It says not as a removal of dirt from the body. And so in this text, Peter is saying the waters of baptism don't have power to cleanse you. And so he's saying the water itself doesn't, doesn't take away your sin, but what it points to does. Your trust in the work of Christ on the cross is what saves you and what cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And so baptism, it says, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And so we can actually approach God with confidence, with a clear conscience, knowing that he has accepted us and that we are forgiven. And the water baptism, so the ordinance of baptism, is profound. Not that the water saves you, but it's pointing to, it's a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. So are you today entrusting yourself to this victorious king who brings his people safely by defeating the enemy and saving his people miraculously and powerfully? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Are you trusting in religion or anything else? It won't save you. Christ alone can save you if you will turn away from your sin and entrust yourself to Jesus. And if you are a believer and you've never been baptized, then you have not gone public yet because baptism is going public. It's telling everyone, I belong to Jesus. So if you're not baptized, come talk to me and we will arrange you to get baptized on the beach once the summer is over and everyone is back from holiday. Baptism, you're saying, I believe, verse 22, as we close, that Jesus has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You're saying Jesus has supreme authority. He has won victory over the enemy. The domain of darkness is defeated. The power of sin is broken. And we can glorify Jesus in the middle of suffering, in the middle of it. We can entrust ourselves to our victorious King, Jesus. Do you honestly trust Jesus? Let me give you two ways to check yourself. Like we talk in home group this week, we're like, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. How do you check yourself? Am I really trusting Jesus? Are you speaking the gospel? If you have no desire to speak the gospel, that is a sign of spiritual unhealth. Next question. Are you living in light of the gospel? Do these questions sound familiar? It's the first two points from this text. Are you living in light of the gospel? Are you living the life that is consistently pointing to Jesus and his gospel? If you're not doing those first two, it's a sign. It's going to show you 
that you were not genuinely entrusting yourself to our victorious King Jesus. Because when we do honestly trust Jesus, it will lead to telling others and living a life that reflects his glory more. How do you respond to suffering? May we at this church be a people that show the world that our God is real, that he alone can satisfy, that he alone is glorious, and we do it by savoring the goodness of Jesus in the middle of suffering. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us the honor of being gathered in your name together. We thank you for your word that so convicts us and so encourages us. I pray for anyone right now in this room that does not know you, that has never repented and trusted in you, May they even now cry out to you and entrust themselves to you, Jesus. I pray for us who are following you, that are your people, that we would be more faithful to you, that we would speak the gospel, live in light of the gospel, and do it for your glory. We trust you. We praise you. And we do so in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.